Anybody like the World Cup? Come on. Okay. Well, I had two thoughts, and they do relate to today. One, I've been loving this World Cup, I think, more than any World Cup that I've ever been alive for. And I think part of the reason I love it is because the U.S. isn't in it. <laughs> and, and here's what I mean by that. It's such a good reminder. No, I, I mean, I didn't realize this till after the fact. I was very upset. I thought, I won't watch the World Cup, but I found myself even more intrigued. I think what it does for me, at least, is it curbs my hubris, which is to say it reminds me that America is not the center of the universe. <laughs> Actually, there's quite a few people around the world, and they're, they're way better at soccer than we are. So it's good for my soul to remember, uh, you know, we contend in this country to be so... Uh, U.S.-centric, and everything revolves around us, and we're the global leader, and the World Cup reminds me we're not. Another thing that reminds me, if you haven't noticed, I was just looking at this as we were singing. Look at the flags. This is Hamilton International Middle School. So many nations represented every week as we sit here, and what we'll see today is a reminder that when we talk about gospel witness, which is uh, what we're calling this current series we're in in the book of Acts, we're talking about a witness to the entire world. Now, now, we're starting right here in Seattle, but you just look around and you think, maybe one day some of, of these nations, we will have a chance or an opportunity, if God asks us to, to witness there as well. Today, we're going to look at something very important about this gospel witness, which is that it never remains inside. It always escapes. The witness of the Holy Spirit always escapes. Anytime we try to put it into a box, anytime we try to hold it in and just focus on ourselves, it's always running somewhere else. And we lose the Spirit of God if we try to just keep it on the inside. So if you are a Christian, if you have witnessed that Jesus is alive, that he is your Savior, that on the cross he died for your sins and three days later he rose and that he's living now, standing, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, advocating for us, if you've witnessed that, if you believe that to be true, then you too need to learn how to move your witness outside of the bubble of your Christian friends. That can be hard. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't an internal witness that happens. It just means true, full, faithful witness always breaks free and moves outwards. It always does. True gospel witness always evolves into an ever-expanding circle of gospel, gospel influence. That's what makes it good news, right? Because it wouldn't be very good news if it was only for us in this place at this time. Or if it was only for the Jews 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. That's not very good news. We wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't experience freedom. We wouldn't experience new life if that was the gospel of Jesus, We'll see in the text today that it's good news because it declares that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, which we talked about last week, is his free gift of forgiveness and adoption into his family through Jesus Christ, God the Son. So you've got to break free. Your witness must inevitably escape this community, this community of believers, and reach beyond to the Gentiles of this city, to the Gentiles of our world. And Gentiles, as we'll see in the text today, that's just anybody who's not already a child of God, part of God's people. So let's just do this right now. We'll do this a couple times today. I want you to close your eyes, literally close, close them, and I want you to think right now, 
Who is that person in your life who you believe is sort of beyond the reach of God? Who's that person? I I want you to visualize their face right now. That's the Gentile in your life. That person that you think, you know what? Maybe the gospel's for everybody. It's not for them. The gospel might take root in these people's lives, but never this person's life. I just want you to dream a big dream right now. God is telling us through this passage today that no one is beyond his reach, that his grace can penetrate any heart, heart no matter how hard. You can open your eyes. If you're not yet a Christian, we're glad that you're here. It's one of the reasons we exist as a community. I hope this is good news for you. You might have walked into this room today. You might have thought, well, you see, I'm not really a God person. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't even grow up in a religious home. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not one of those spiritual people. Today's truth will remove those lines of thinking that you cannot find life in Jesus. Everyone who wants life in Jesus Christ can find it. There are no boundaries, there are no borders that keep anyone from life in Jesus. Now if you say to yourself, that's just hard to believe. Maybe, maybe you think that about yourself, I might be the exception. Maybe you think about your friend that you visualized. Uh, I just don't know, it's hard to believe. Well, you're in good company, because what we'll see today is Peter, the one who Jesus said, you are the rock that I will build my church globally upon, Peter himself struggled to believe. In fact, he struggled so much to believe this truth that God had to give him a supernatural vision to break free, to push him over the apex of this difficult, difficult reality. So you're in good company. If it took a vision for Peter, maybe it'll take this sermon for you to push you over the edge Because many of us explicitly believe that there are just some people that the gospel can't reach. Or we implicitly struggle with this by the way that we act. We don't even bring up these conversations with certain people. I'm praying that God gives you all a vision today. A vision that his salvation and his power are far greater than we ever could imagine on our own. Okay? You excited about that? I'm excited about that. So if you got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows. You can grab them. Uh, There's quite a bit of text today, so we don't have it up on the slide. So I really encourage you to either grab a Bible, uh, or if if there's not a Bible within grabbing distance, you can look it up on your phone and Google Acts chapter 10. Uh, There's quite a long account here, uh, which is why we know this is pretty important to Luke, who is the author of Acts, the first 30 years of the Jesus movement. He's recorded it for us to explain to us how the Jesus movement began to uh, encircle all the world as it has now, okay? Acts chapter 10. If you weren't here with us last week, what we saw is that the gospel had always centered in Jerusalem. Jesus uh, rose from the grave in Jerusalem, appeared to his uh, disciples, who we now call apostles. Those are the ones that walked with him during his earthly ministry of about three years. Um, They become sort of the leaders in the early church. Uh, They give some leadership to some others who had also walked with Jesus. And what we saw last week is that the mission of Jesus is beginning to move outside of Judea, which was 
the land where Israelites lived, Jewish people, to, uh, it moved last week, we saw to the Samaritans, which is just right outside. It was sort of the first circle outside of the circle of uh, full-blooded Jews. The Samaritans uh, were considered half-breeds. They had intermarried with non-Jewish people, so they were like half-Jewish, half-non-Jewish. And that was sort of scandalous in its own right because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans very much. But they were still, kind of, it was like they were like cousins, okay? So you could see how God, well, maybe he'll invite them back in. They had sort of walked away from God many centuries ago. Maybe he's inviting them back in. Okay, so that's one thing. But now we're going to see today, actually, the circle gets even bigger. And now it includes complete non-Jewish people known as the Gentiles, people like the Romans, and the Greeks. Now, wait a minute. These people have no historical ties to the God of the Old Testament, to Yahweh. He's going to let them in. So here's, I'm going to summarize the story and then we'll come back and read it. I want to summarize so you can get sort of a 30,000 foot view of what's going on. Um, there was a Roman soldier named Cornelius and he was living in a, a seaport town called Caesarea and it says he, he was actually a good moral person. In fact, he liked the morality of the Jewish people, and he probably went and visited the synagogue. And so he was sort of, they called him a God-fearer. So he's a pretty good guy. He gave to the poor. He gave to the needy. He was sort of everything you would want a human being to be. He was a, was a good man. He was a Roman soldier named Cornelius. And as he's praying one day, he has a vision telling him to send some of his men down to Joppa, which is about 32 miles south of, of Caesarea, and, he's, and the vision tells him to bring a man back to him named Peter. Now, they don't have Bibles back then, no internet. He has no idea who Peter is. He doesn't know Peter is one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus. All he knows is he has a vision, send for a man named Peter. So he does. Now, the next day, Peter, who is in Joppa, he has a vision while he is praying. And his vision is kind of odd. It has to do with sheets coming down out of the sky and animals of all sorts uh, in those sheets. And then God tells him, there are people here that have come for you. I want you to let them into your house. These are the people that Cornelius had sent. So uh, Peter invites them in. Peter understands uh, this vision, and we'll talk about that. But Peter goes back to Caesarea with Cornelius' men and delivers to them a message. The message that God had told Cornelius that Peter would deliver, which, believe it or not, is the gospel message. And then what happens is they hear the gospel message, they believe that it's true. Cornelius, the Gentile, the Roman soldier, it says everyone there received the Holy Spirit. It fell upon them. Then what happens is Word gets around that Peter had been preaching to the Gentiles, and people back in Jerusalem were confused. They're, they're a bit upset, saying, Gentiles, we're going to let them into this new movement, those unclean, uncommon people, those people that God had already always told us to stay separate from because we were meant to be a holy nation. And so they call Peter, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he has to convince all of his fellow Christians that this is the plan of God. That no longer is the Jesus movement an ethnocentric movement of Jewish people, but it includes all people, all nations. It's beautiful. So that's the big picture of what's going on here in chapters 10 
and the first half of 11. So now let's look more closely at these two visions that God gives, one to Cornelius and one to Peter, starting right here at the beginning of chapter 10. The word of God says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He was like a captain in the military. He had about 100 men underneath his dominion. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He gave offerings to the poor. And he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one, Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, who is a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having rela- uh, related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, there's a few things I want to point out here about this first vision, the vision of Cornelius. The first thing I want to say is that look at how many Simons <laughs> there are. If you were here last week, we preached about another Simon, known as the mag- magician, who is not a good Simon. He misses it. He misses the entire point of the gospel. And here again, we have Simon, who's called Peter, and Simon the Tanner. I just want to point this out because uh, sometimes we say, well, the Bible is just made up. Just a bunch of guys sat in a room and created a story. You would not create a story with so many Simons back to back to back. (laughs) If you were making up this story, you'd pick different names for each of the people so that you wouldn't confuse Simon the Apostle with Simon the Magician or Simon the Tanner. These are real people living in real world history, and Luke is just recording for us faithfully. So many Simons. <laughs> okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, he has this vision, and he sends three of his men 32 miles south to Joppa. He was convinced this was a vision from God. No buses, no trains, no automobiles. This is a long trek to go see if this vision would lead to something else. He's convinced God had given him a vision. And this is not a Jewish man. This is a centurion, a soldier in in the Roman army. Now, what does it mean that it says here he was praying and giving alms and God received all of that as a memorial? I mean, some people will read this and they'll say, well, Cornelius was already accepted by God. In fact, some people believe that because, jump with me to verse 35, where Peter begins, he comes back to Cornelius and he begins to preach, and he says this in verse 35. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So some scholars have said, well see, Cornelius was already accepted by God. Is that what's going on here? I think this is important because we know lots of moral, humble, generous morally superior, in fact, people in our lives. And sometimes we wonder, does God already receive their, their act of life 
as an offering? Is it acceptable to God? Does he already accept them even before they hear the gospel? Well, let's look at three things that I think will help us explain or come to an answer. The first is this. If being a good person, giving generously, being humble was enough, why is it that God says go send three men so that they can bring back Peter because he has a message for you? The second thing is to look at verse 43. Look at verse 43. It says this. To him, that's Jesus, this is still in Peter's uh, speech, to him, that's Jesus, all of the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Through his name. Everyone who believes in Jesus. It seems here you have to believe in more than just God, generally, as Cornelius did, but you have to believe in him, that's Jesus, because it's in his name that you receive forgiveness of sin. Third thing, when Peter finally convinces his Jewish Christians, chapter 11, he goes back to Jerusalem, explains everything that's hap- that has happened. Here's what eventually all the other Jewish Christians came to this conclusion, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, quote, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see? God has granted that those who repent of their sin, they're falling short of the glory of God, to them God grants life. Okay? So what can we say then? Here's how I interpret this. And actually, if you translate the word uh, back in verse 35 where he says, everybody who does right is acceptable to God, that word acceptable, actually a better translation is welcomed. To everyone who does right, God welcomes, not fully into his family yet, but welcomes to hear the gospel message, believe, repent, and join the family. He welcomes them. All are welcome. Everyone is welcome to this. So here's what we have in Cornelius. We have a man who has humbled himself, understanding that he cannot save himself, that he is not the center of his world, but that God is the center of the universe. He's humbled himself to that fact, and he is open to receiving new revelation, new information. And so God welcomes him by doing what? Sending him an envoy, sending him a messenger to bring him now fully into the kingdom of God, which will require Cornelius to hear the gospel, repent of his sin, and ask God to come into his life, which is exactly what will happen. Does that make sense? Do you see that? I think it's pretty important to understand how this goes. And, and at Sedaris, we talk about this a lot. We, we see that God, with certain people, has sort of primed the pump, so to speak, Certain people are ready to hear the good news about Jesus. They're ready to consider the good news. And at Sedaris, which is a Latin root of the word consider, we always say that, that God delights in honest consideration, even if it's before they fully believe and repent. So we say, if you're here today and you're just considering, is this Jesus thing true, is it real? Even if you're just considering, is there a God and what is my responsibility to him? Here at Sedaris, we celebrate you. We celebrate the fact that you're considering, that you're moving outside 
of your own circle of influence and you're saying, I am willing to hear a new message. We celebrate that because we think God delights, as he does with Cornelius, even at that level, even before you fully give your life over to Jesus. So if you're here considering, I think God's delighting in the fact that you're here. Even if you don't know him personally, I just want you to know he's glad that you're here. Don't stop considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is crazy stuff. God is giving a vision to a man who has yet to receive the Holy Spirit because his heart is receptive. And God can do this, and God does do this. If, if, you, if you hear, you may have heard these stories. You hear these stories a lot in the Muslim world where people don't have access to the gospel in the way we do here in the Western world. You hear people who are not yet Christians, who are God-fearers, having dreams and visions of Jesus the Christ and coming to faith. People that didn't know him before have a dream and a vision. They come to faith in Jesus by that dream and vision. Many, many stories coming out of parts of the world of that happening. Pretty crazy stuff. Now let's look at the second vision, starting in verse 9. Read this with me. The Word of God says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, that's Joppa, this is the three men that Cornelius had sent, Peter went up on top of the housetop at about the sixth hour, which is noon, to pray. And he became hungry, and he waited or he wanted something to eat. Love this story. I feel like I'm always hungry, especially when I'm praying. <laughs> but while they were preparing his food, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet was descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice, and it said this, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him and said a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, because he didn't get it. <laughs> and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What's going on here? What's going on? Luke will repeat this vision in its totality in chapter 11, too. Now, he could have in chapter 11 just said, and Peter recalled the vision a second time for the apostles in Jerusalem. But he goes through the full detail. Why does he do that? Because I think it's that important because something's happening here. God is declaring something magnificent for his salvation plan for humankind. And what is he proclaiming? What is he proclaiming? We've got some sheets coming down. We've got some animals. We've got some killing and some eating. What's going on? Well, to understand this fully, we have to understand uh, the Jewish food law. In the Old Testament, we, we hear about certain foods that God declares to his people are off limits. Things like pork. Things like shrimp. And the question is, why does God restrict these things? Now, I think a, a, an understanding of why God restricts them is not because they are some evolution gone wrong, but because God is trying to distinguish his people, the people of Israel, from every other nation. So in every other nation, these are the things they ate. But in Israel, these things God has said are off limits. And so by the way they lived, 
they were sort of declaring something to the nations, that our God is different from your gods, and our God has asked us to live in a way that's different, that's set apart, which is where we get the word holy. And so when Peter says, I've never eaten of anything that is common or unclean, he's saying the same thing. Unclean would be, God has said these foods are unclean, and common, what would have been, the rest of the world eats these foods. They have it in common, except for the nation of Israel. They are uncommon because they don't eat these things. So Peter's saying, I would never do that, Lord. I've always followed the Old Testament food laws and restrictions to a T. And God comes back and he says, Peter, don't call what I have made clean unclean or common. I decide what's clean and what's not clean. So it's not that Peter had gotten it wrong his whole life. It's that God is declaring things are about to change. You had always, already, always been set apart as a nation for a specific purpose to highlight that your God is different, but now a time has come when all nations are being brought back into the family of God. You will no longer be set apart, but now you will go into all nations declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just, I think it's beautiful here that the two things that God is doing through this vision are connected. The first is that no longer are these foods unclean. And second, no longer are these people unclean. You see how these are connected? How, how do we tend to connect with people? How do you connect with people? You want to connect with your neighbor? What's one of the ways you do it? You invite them over. For what? For some food. So because the food laws had already always separated for God's purposes, the people of Israel from the nations, they couldn't invite over Gentiles to eat with them. This is how we connect. We connect over food. And so God is saying through his vision to Peter, now all food is clean so that you can once again connect with your non-Jewish neighbors and we can create one new humanity. Food always connects people. That's why we always encourage people here, go to lunch together with somebody you met during the four-minute conversation. Invite them to go eat with you. God wants us to connect with all peoples of all backgrounds. This is earth-shattering news to a Jewish man. It is hard for us to fathom because we eat everything and too much of it, of whom I am the first of sinners. Okay, so I eat too much food. We all eat too much food. But for a Jewish people, this is huge. If you have Jewish friends who have not yet come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you realize for practicing Jewish people, this is still infinitely important to them. Food laws are so important. And so for Jesus, or for God to send a vision to Peter and say, listen, that's the old way, the new way. Nothing is, unco- or nothing is common. Nothing is unclean. This is huge, earth-shattering news to a Jewish man. There is a new era. God is doing something new, and it starts with this vision. And I want you to show, I just want you, you know, Peter gets hammered. We hammered Peter a lot when we went through the Gospel of Mark, because he just has a hard time getting it. But now he has the Holy Spirit, and I just want to show you how quickly Peter initiates this new era that God sets forth in a vision. So 
Look here again at verse 24 in chapter 10. Excuse me, sorry, verse 17. Verse 17, look, look what, what happened, how fast this happens. The vision ends. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, men were coming sent by Cornelius. Guess what kind of people these men were? Unclean, common Gentiles. And they're coming up to his house. And they'd made inquiry, inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, that's Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19, And while Peter was pondering the vision still, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Probably not a coincidence. The sheet had to fall three times, and it's three men that come looking for him. And Peter, what's he do? He hides. No. Verse 21, He went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you had to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. For us, we're like, yeah. He was breaking Old Testament law. And we'll see that. Look at verse 28. Skip ahead to verse 28. Peter goes back to Cornelius' house, and he says just this. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. And right here, just moments after receiving the vision, even while he's processing, he trusts God enough to invite these Gentile men into his house. He probably ate with them. They probably stayed the night and he's just shattered the glass ceiling. This is wild, you guys. It's so hard for us to see because we're living in the manifestation to some regard of, of this reality. Thanks be to Peter that he believes God. He listens to God. And he acts according to God's new law, this new era. Start with me in verse 23 again. The next day, Peter rose and went away with those three Gentile men, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I love this. If you know that a gospel preacher is coming to town, invite all your friends. We'll see that next week at baptisms. If you're being baptized, invite all your friends, all your relatives to come see what God is doing. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Of course, this is the man God had given him a vision of. He must be a special man. Look at what Peter says. But Peter lifted him up and almost yells at him, stand up, I too am just a man. Peter knows he's nothing special. He knows Jesus is special, but he's just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And this is where he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for the Jews to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? 
And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask Simon, a man called Peter, he is lodging in a house of Simon a Tanner by the sea, so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord, parenthetical comment, to tell us. Wow, can you imagine that moment where these two men who could not be more different, who could not be more enemies, the Jews not only hated the Gentiles, they hated the Roman army because they'd been oppressing the Jews for centuries. And they come, and Peter gets to hear about this vision that this Gentile had from God. And he starts to be like, wow, God is so much bigger even than I believed. What a moment for these two men standing face to face to share about the visions that they've had. Now, what we're going to see begin here is scandalous desegregation. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more here in a second. But before we do, I, I want to just say a few comments about visions because I believe visions are an important part of God's witness to the world. The first thing I want to say is that both Cornelius and Peter were already praying when they received their visions. Times of prayer, 3 p.m. and noon. These were times when Jewish people would always pray. And because Cornelius was following the ways of the Jews, he was praying. Visions always come in the normal course of, of continual, consistent prayer. Don't just be waiting for a vision from God. I think he still gives visions today, but it always comes in the course of our normal relationship, interaction with God. Are you spending time praying, or are you just waiting for a vision? I was studying this week about a woman uh, named St. Teresa of Avila in Spain, and she lived from uh, 1515 to about 1582. She's a Catholic nun, an incredible woman, and, and she was sort of known for these mystical visions that she would have of God, angelic visions and things like that. But that wasn't what drove her. In fact, she was actually a little bit embarrassed by these visions. What drove her was a passionate prayer life. She believed in the discipline of prayer. In fact, um, the reason that we know so much about St. Teresa is that she left her convent because she believed that the other nuns there had lost their dedication. They'd become lax in their life of the spiritual disciplines. And so she asked permission to go start her own convent, and she started a whole network in Spain of these convents that were disciplined in prayer life. An amazing woman. She wasn't looking and searching for visions. She was passionate about spending time in relationship with Jesus through prayer. She once said this to a fellow nun who was struggling uh, in her prayer life. She said this. She said, I want you to say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want you to say the Lord's Prayer, but I want you to take an hour to do it. I said, that's profound. So you go and try that. Say the Lord's Prayer, but take an hour to do it. Her dedication to her relationship with God through Christ led to a life full of visions and she moved forward uh, within the Catholic Church, this deep, personal idea of relationship with God. 
And Peter and Cornelius both experience visions because they are praying. The second thing I want to say about visions is this. Peter can only interpret his vision because he is so steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He wouldn't have been able to understand what God was saying if he didn't have already this relationship with the Old Testament laws, customs, and even the mission of God of why he created these laws. So Peter, even though he's trying to figure out why is this, why is this, because he spent so much time in the scriptures and because he had spent so much time with Jesus, he was able to interpret correctly. And finally, uh, visions are always given, I think, to push the mission of God forward. You just think of like a really challenging hike and uh, on the other side of it is some um, great valley, some great life, but it can be very hard to get over that peak. And in God's salvation history that is unfolding in real time, he will use visions to push us that last way to get over the top. Because remember, I I said this, uh, I don't know if I said this earlier, but this is a story about Cornelius' conversion to Christianity, the first Gentile convert, But even more than that, it's about Peter's conversion. Peter's conversion to a desegregated mission of God. It's as much about Peter's conversion as it is about Cornelius's. And it's so important to understand that. Because I think many of us, many people in this country who consider themselves Christians, need to have a conversion of our hearts to see the plan and the picture of God with more clarity. We need a new vision. You see, the Jews believe the Gentiles to be dogs. And not in the good sense, okay? I'm talking about stray dogs. Not like, oh, this is a nice pet. They hated them. There's nothing worse than calling somebody a dog. This is how they viewed the Gentiles. Unlawful to eat dinner at the same tables unclean to share the same water wells. You'd lose your social standing if you were seen befriending a Gentile. I need, I need you guys to wrap your head around this, to understand the power of God and the power of the gospel. Does this remind you of another time, another place that, that we've heard about? Does this remind you of the Jim Crow South? Separate? but equal, different restaurants, different sections of the restaurants, different water fountains, different schools. As I thought about this, this is, this is the human heart, this is what we do. We segregate. It's us and them. As I thought about this, I thought about another famous vision, another dream that a Christian brother used to drive forward a movement towards equality. If it hasn't popped into your head yet, Dr. Martin Luther King. And I did a little research on his dream speech this week because I wondered, I said, I wonder if he actually had a real vision, a real dream. And I couldn't find anything to either confirm or deny <laughs> that there was a real vision, a real dream behind it. But, but I don't think it matters I did find this, though, about that dream speech that I thought was, i got to share this. When he gave that famous speech at the 1963 uh, Civil Rights Rally in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., 250,000 people there, guess what wasn't in his notes? 
I have a dream. It wasn't in there. Now, he had actually given a similar speech months earlier that did have that language in there. And one of his close friends that often toured with him was a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson. And she actually sung at this rally in 1963, Washington, D.C., just a few minutes before Martin Luther King got up to give his speech. And so she's standing within earshot of Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King is going through his speech, and and I encourage you to go listen to the full speech. The first part's great, but it's all about bad checks. (laughs) It's all about the United States Constitution has written a check to all people, and that's a bad check because we can't cash it as African Americans. It's a pretty cool speech, but I don't know if we'd be telling in our schools, have you heard about that bad check speech that Martin Luther King gave? What a speech. (laughs) Okay? So he's giving his speech. It's quite profound. And then all of a sudden, he stops. And if you watch the recording, you you can see him stop. There's like a pause about 10 seconds. And before that, he has been reading his notes. And he pauses. Now, here's what happened. Mahalia Jackson is watching him speak, speak, speak. And she hollers out, tell him about that dream, Martin. Tell him about that dream. And uh, he stops. And this is true. You can go watch it. He never once looks back down at his notes. He says, I have a dream. And he begins probably the most famous speech in American history. And really, you know, his speech, some would say, some could say, it devolved into preaching. (laughs) I would say it evolved into preaching. And from then on, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a language that the 250,000 people there could hear. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a dream about reconciliation of all people from all nations, of all ethnicities, of all race, of all socioeconomic class, into one new people. That's the heart of Martin Luther King's dream. It's the gospel. God promises that any man, woman, of any race, ethnicity, nationality, can become one people through faith in Jesus Christ. In a a letter, it's a great book here, a letter from a Birmingham jail when Martin Luther King was imprisoned for the work he was doing. He wrote a letter to other clergymen, other pastors in Birmingham, trying to convince them to join in together with his mission. And he wrote this. As he's in jail, he says this. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. What do you think drove him? I mean, he believed that the Constitution was written with the eternal will of God in mind, but he's driven by the fact that God himself has promised, starting right here in Acts chapter 10, that all peoples are created equal. God says, don't call common what I've made clean. Martin Luther King believed with all his heart because God had promised that that is his will, that one day, whether in his lifetime or in another, that cry for freedom, that cry for equality, that cry for desegregation would become true 
because God wants it to. That was the jet fuel that propelled Martin Luther King Jr., the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the jet fuel that propelled the civil rights movement, the eternal will of God. And God declared his will right here to Peter 1,900 years ago. So what does Peter do? What does Peter say when he gets the chance to preach to the Gentiles? Uh, Read it with me real quick. Right here, starting in verse 34. So Peter says, I'm here. What do you want me to do? Cornelius says, tell us what God told you to tell us. Peter says, he opened his, it says, uh, Luke writes, Peter opened his mouth and said this, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does his, does what is right is acceptable to God. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in that country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging Jesus on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God to be witnesses. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Amen. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews that came with Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Wow. Wow. What does Peter do? What does Peter do? What is the message God has sent to us from you? And he preaches the historic, orthodox gospel of Jesus Christ. He preaches about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel, folks. That's the good news of reconciliation. They are the same. The gospel is the good news of reconciliation. Vertical reconciliation between God and humanity. Horizontal reconciliation between this nation and that. Between this race and that race. The old way of segregation, the old caste system has died with Jesus Christ on the cross and now a new way, a new life, a new equality is born today when Jesus rose from the grave. Amen? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the way forward. Without the gospel, racial, ethnic, international reconciliation is not possible. Let me say it again. It is not possible no matter how hard we try, because the gospel is both the message of reconciliation and the means of reconciliation. Does that make sense? It is the message, God is doing this, he's declaring it, and it's the means, it's the vehicle by which it will happen. 
Some people say, I love the message of reconciliation, but I'll find some other means to make it happen. It won't work. You want to know why Martin Luther King got so far? Why he accomplished so much? It's because he believed the gospel was the message of reconciliation and the means of reconciliation. The message is declared that the eternal will of God is one people of every color, shape, size, language, background, united as one. And the means to making that happen is by taking the gospel into every nation, ethnic group, language group, every part of this city. Here's why. It's probably clear that the message is about reconciliation. Let me show you why the means, how this works. The means of the gospel is this. True reconciliation, true desegregation only happens with a change of heart. And that's what the gospel promises. You see, the Spirit fell on them and their hearts were changed. Any movement that's just focused on the external will ultimately fall short. It might get some good momentum going, but eventually the hearts of sinful, prideful human beings, it will teeter out. But the gospel works from the inside and moves outward. See, that's why it's okay, Jesus will say, to eat foods. It's not the food that makes you unclean, it's the heart that makes you unclean. And I'm giving you a new heart so that all things can become clean, starting with the heart and moving outward. So at Sedaris, this is why we major on the gospel. He's like, you preach the same thing every week. It's the gospel this and the gospel that. Exactly. It's not because we don't care about other issues that plague our city, that plague our nation, that plague our world. It's precisely because we care that we major on the gospel. You see this? We care about civil rights. We care about poverty. We care about homelessness. We care about equality. But we believe that the only way to affect that is by people, individuals, experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, and being transformed internally that they might live out the gospel in the world. We want to be a multicultural church. Hasn't happened yet. It will happen when we finally get the gospel and we say all people are welcome here. And we're convinced that Peter was right, that it's preaching the gospel that it's the gospel absorbing into our blood that will make this lasting transformative change to external matters. So we refuse to become willfully ignorant to the fact, to the lie that meaningful, lasting, righteous movements can be maintained apart from the work of God which begins and ends with Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into the world, died the death that we should have died and rose to new life that we too can live to. We refuse to pretend Like, that can happen elsewhere. So we must, we must get the gospel to seep into the fabric of our society. And this is how we think it happens. It starts in the hearts of us as individuals, just like Martin Luther King, and it moves outward through the blood, the sweat, and the tears that come out of us as we pursue righteousness and justice and gospel-motivated acts of love in this city, thus staining the very fabric of our society irrevocably. (laughs) You can't undo it. When the blood and the sweat and the tears of God's people who are motivated by the gospel go out into the city, out of this place, it will stain the fabric of our society for the good. 
for the good. So at this point, you say, well, when does change happen? It's important to say this. This change, this heart change, doesn't happen before you become a Christian. It happens after. So the gospel meets people wherever they're at, whatever they believe, whatever they do. You don't have to change to become a Christian, but those who become true Christians will always change in the ways that I've just mentioned. And so racism, indifference to racism, avoidance of this difficult topic, these are all heart issues, and the gospel is the only thing that kills the old, sad, lame hearts and makes them new by the power of God's spirit. So that's how the gospel is the means. The second way the gospel is the means goes like this. True reconciliation True desegregation requires commonality. Now, what do I have in common with someone halfway around the world who speaks a different language than me, who has a totally different background than me, totally different financial situation than me? What do I have in common with these people? How can I have true familial reconciliation? And the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. Everybody's heard the same message, believed the same message, received the same free gift of God's spirit, and for that reason, we have in common a common message, a common judge, says right here, Luke says that Peter said, a common savior from that judgment, and a common salvation. I like to think of uh, a Yankees fan in Brussels. Imagine a Yankees fan living in Brussels, an American Yankees fan living in Brussels. He's got the hat. And imagine that the day after Game 7 of the World Series, in which, if you're not a baseball fan, Aaron Judge, great home run hitter uh, for the Yankees, hits a three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs, down two runs, to win the game. And you're a Yankees fan living in Brussels, and you see across the way a Belgian-born Yankees fan wearing a hat. The very same day after both of you listened in your own languages to the radio broadcast of the Game 7 World Series. You know what you're going to do? See that guy across the way? You're going to run to him in slow motion like he's the love of your life. (laughs) And you're going to embrace him, and you're going to love him because you have in that moment all things in common. You've heard the same message broadcast in your own language. You have a common savior and judge. Plan words. <laughs> you have a shared story of an unthinkable salvation that happened in victory. And so you have a common joy, a common celebration, a hope confirmed. Well, that's exactly what happens anytime you meet another Christian in any part of the world. Same message, same judge and savior, same spirit, same salvation, a common joy a brotherhood, a sisterhood that happens with almost no words being exchanged. That's how reconciliation is made possible by the vehicle which is the gospel. We believe that Martin Luther King has a vision from God, just like Peter, that freedom, that racial reconciliation can mark this country and every country on God's good green earth. We believe it because we believe that it's God's eternal, divine, sovereign will. 
He declares it so right here. So that when we allow ourselves to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ into new creations, we can be a part of this reconciliation, which is why we bleed and we sweat and we weep that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out, starting in our city, and spread in circles, ever expanding to the far reaches of our country and our world for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your good and perfect will for our world. We repent of, the own, of our own racism, of our own prejudices, all the ways that we fall short of this perfect vision that you gave to Peter, of all of God's children coming together in worship of Jesus, your son. God, we pray for a vision. Give us right now, God, give us a vision now and in these next few songs, a vision of maybe a person or a people group that we need to engage by the power of your spirit. God, for the Peters in the room, give us a vision of a Cornelius. God, for the Corneliuses in the room, give us a vision of a Peter, someone that can lead us to life in Jesus by teaching us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that this church would be full of ministers of reconciliation, that this church would become a multicultural, multi-ethnic church for the glory of God and for the good of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every week we come and celebrate the Lord's table. This is a table of reconciliation. This table is open to each and every human being who wants to call upon the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sin, for salvation. So if you're trusting in Jesus, this table is for you. No matter what your background, no matter what you've done, this table is a table of reconciliation that all God's children come to and eat around the world to say, by the body of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, we are now one with God and with each other. So I offer to you what I also receive on the night Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and broke it. This is my body broken for you. The blood, the cup, which is the covenant of my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death and everything it means for reconciliation and desegregation and wholeness as the new people of God until I come again and eat with you in the new kingdom. So if you're trusting in Jesus, rip off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it to symbolize that unity. So when you're ready, come to this table and have fellowship with Jesus.